Folks, your shame is not greater than the grace of God. His invitation is to you to come to the wedding feast and receive anew his incredible kindness to you today. Come unto me all who are heavy laden, Jesus said, and, and I'll give you rest. What is the solution for shame? Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. We know that sin causes shame, but do we believe that God's grace is stronger than our sin and shame? Today, David shares powerful truth to help us overcome the obstacle of shame in our lives. Turn with me to Colossians 2 as David concludes his message, Worthlessness and Shame. In many cultures, there is a shame and honor base which drives the entire culture. So oftentimes uh, in Islamic cultures, for example, if you have a child who might convert from Islam to Christianity, the parents might kill the child. Why? Because the child has wrecked their understanding of honor and shame in their culture. The child has shamed the father, so the father must kill the child for doing so. Now, that's an extreme example, but cultures can define what's right and what's wrong, and when people don't live up to that, they feel shame. Fourthly, there's inferiority shame. That's the feelings of inadequacy. Um, It's the failure people feel when they lose a job or when their marriage fails. Um, It's the kind of failure I think Jesus must have felt when people were trying to recognize who he was. And some people would say, isn't that Jesus from Nazareth? Then the question would be asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And now that was not asked nicely. You know, can anything good come out of that nice little town called Nazareth? No, it was a question of scorn. It was a shame-based question because Nazareth was considered at the bottom of proper cities in the Israelite culture. So the question really was asked like this, can anything come good out of Nazareth? It's impossible. That is the armpit of all other cities here in this nation. So Jesus felt scorn simply because of his societal city from which he came. And fifth and finally, there's moral shame. And this is the one that produces the most shame in people's lives today. Uh, It is the feelings of inadequacy. Uh, It is the feeling that Joseph and Mary and and probably Jesus himself felt when people would whisper behind the scenes, she got pregnant out of wedlock. You know, the moral code of that day was no sex out of wedlock. And when she got pregnant and wasn't married to Joseph, there were whispers that most certainly didn't last just for a few years, but probably decades. When people asked the question, isn't that Jesus, Joseph's son? They weren't just inquiring about Jesus as a man. There was underneath it that scorn of, isn't he illegitimate? How dare he claim to be God himself? So that moral code that underwrites a society oftentimes causes shame. Many of you were forced to read in middle school or high school the book, The Scarlet A. Uh, It's the book of Esther Prim, who committed adultery, uh, had sex outside of marriage. and, And because of that, the community discovered it and forced her to wear a red A on her dress. Therefore, every place she went in the community, she was identified by her adultery. She became the adulterer, and the A on her dress symbolized how she had failed the moral code of the society, and therefore, she should be ashamed. 
It was a shame-based reality. But the truth is, many people today in our culture have at least unseen letters on their hearts that many of you think identify who you are. Uh, Some of you might have an A because you've committed adultery and you feel that defines you and you feel ashamed. Others of you have a big D, divorced or divorcee, and you identify with the fact you failed in your marriage. Other people have C, crazy. People have called you crazy and you think that's who you really are. Other people have B for bankrupt. You've failed in business and you've gone bankrupt and you think that now identifies who you really are. Some of you have a BP, two letters, bad parent. Your children have wandered away from God and you feel terrible about all of their wandering. Uh, You have an F for some of you for fired. Uh, You didn't live up to your boss's expectations or something happened in your job and you were fired. You see, your identity is wrapped up in your shame. Like Esther Prim, she's an adulterer. Now your identity is wrapped up in how you have failed. Bottom line is you see God and his character as kind of a probation officer. When you do well, he leaves you alone. But if you should ever mess up, He's going to come after you. And the tool he's going to use is pointing his eternal, celestial, bony finger at you and making you feel shame. So take a moment and just think about those places where your cheeks flush and you feel embarrassed by something you've done in your life, probably, mostly, a moral shame. Do you feel those feelings? Have they become alive to you now? Do you know the letter you've put on your chest to define who you are? My word to you today is don't get stuck here. Don't. And have a right view of God, not as a probation officer, not as a police person in the sky who's ready to get you whenever you do something wrong, but see God for who he really is, which leads to the next point. What is the solution for shame? Let me give you several ideas from God's word. First of all, the solution to shame is to go to Gilgal. G-I-L-G-A-L. Go to Gilgal. Now, what is Gilgal? Let me give you a brief history of what happened before the Israelites encamped at Gilgal. When Moses had led the Israelites from the captivity of Egypt, they still had very much a slave mentality. They viewed God as a probation officer, and they had been punished in the captivity. They never saw themselves as free. Even when God gave them the Ten Commandments and the law at Mount Sinai, they still had that slave mentality. They marched from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea at the foot of the promised land. They sent out 12 spies. Ten of them, though, came back seeing God as a probation officer, that God wasn't big enough to overcome the giants in the land. Two, Joshua and uh, Caleb said, no, our God's bigger than those problems in the land. Let's move forward. But the ten overcame the two who overcame the three million, and the people became afraid in, in unbelief. And God said, in Popeye theology, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. I'm not going to deal with these people who have such a slave mentality. So what did God do? He said, you're going to have to spend 40 years in the wilderness, one year after another, just lapping the wilderness until this generation of unbelievers dies out, and I can raise up a new generation who will believe what I tell them, who will have great 
faith. So that generation dies out, Moses dies, Joshua takes over and takes the people into the promised land. But before he does so, several things happen. As God divided the Red Sea to move the Israelites from Egypt into Sinai region, so God dries up the Jordan River, separating them in Kadesh Barnea into the promised land. And when he dries up the Jordan, they take 12 stones out of the Jordan and they cross it and they build an altar that's basically a circle. The stones are to remind them of a second chance of God's faithfulness drying up not only the Red Sea, but also drying up the Jordan River. And then God demands all the, the men to be circumcised. Now, what's circumcision? God commanded Abraham that his son and all males thereafter be circumcised. It was an outward sign of an inward covenant that God gave to all of the Jews. And it was a command. It was the special remembrance that God's promise is true. God would be faithful, God would deliver them, God would always help them, whatever obstacle they would face. So they had the 12 stones in a circle, they had the circumcision among all the males then done, and the third thing that God does, he takes them to a place called Gilgal. And in Joshua chapter five, verse nine, the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal, to this day. Now, why is all of this important? Well, first of all, the word Gilgal means circle. It's almost like God was saying to the Israelites as they had these 12 stones taken from the middle of the Jordan River, encircled with each other, that I am now the God who, who comes to you and I'm gonna give you another chance. Let's circle around this problem of unbelief again. And every time you look at these stones, remember, my faithfulness to you. And then with circumcision, remember this outward sign of my inward reality that I will be faithful to you. And then also the word roll away here is galal, much like Gilgal. It rhymes with Gilgal, and it means roll away. So every time you think about circumcision, remember, I rolled away all of your past. I cut it away. It's all gone. And now I'm going to give you, at this place called Gilgal, a new chance, a new start, a new way of living. In fact, in the New Testament, we see this understanding of circumcision at Gilgal repeated. Colossians 2, 11 and 12, the apostle Paul says this, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Don't you see, folks, that what God does in Christ is a new kind of circumcision, not literal outward, but God cuts away all the shame of the foreskin of our heart. He cuts it away and makes us into new people. Baptism is the evidence of it. We go under the water, dying to that old self, all of those old places of shame, and we come out of the water, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. So the moment you start thinking about your shame, you go to Gilgal and believe that there God has rolled away all of your shame and guilt and he gives you a new start, a second chance, a fifth chance, a hundredth chance because that's the God we believe in, in Jesus Christ. His grace is stronger than our sin. Then secondly, look at the woman in Luke the seventh chapter. We don't know her name. 
All we know is she was a woman of great sin. Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house, and there, as was the custom, they should have washed his feet. They didn't even wash his feet. This woman is so overcome with the forgiveness that she had received in Jesus, she comes up to Jesus, and she starts washing his feet with her hair crying and weeping. She lets her hair down, which was usually the symbol of a prostitute in that day, but she was so in love with Jesus, she washes his feet with her hair, breaks open an alabaster box that was rich with perfume and washes his feet with her hair. The Pharisees object to it and say, this shouldn't be done. And Jesus' answer to them is Luke 7, verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Take your shame to Jesus. Weep over it, cry over it, wash his feet with it, but say to him, Lord, I give it to you, my shame. And the more you know how you've broken Jesus' heart, the greater his forgiveness is. Your understanding of forgiveness in your heart is directly in proportion to how great you know your sin is. This woman knew she was a great sinner. She received great forgiveness. The woman is an evidence of how Jesus' grace is stronger than our sin. Also, thirdly, look at the prodigal son and the prodigal father in Luke, the 15th chapter. Many of you know the story. Uh, The young son wanted to rebel against the dad. He demanded his rights and his inheritance. He takes it, runs away from his dad. And in that culture, in a shame, honor-based culture, that dad could not have been more shamed. The boy goes away, spends his entire inheritance, ends up in a pigsty as a fine Jewish boy in a pigsty. Can you imagine? He finally awakens when no one gives him anything. Uh, For those of you who are caught in the difficulty of enabling people to sin, please read that text in Luke 15 where no one gave this boy anything and it was only when he reached the end of his rope that he awakened and said, it's time to go home. So as he's going home, he prepares his entire speech to his dad. His dad sees him on the horizon coming home and runs to him, raising up his skirts as an older man sprinting toward his son. And I think everybody in the community saw it too. And they came with the dad to see how his dad would treat the son who should be ashamed having broken the laws of an honor-based culture. So what does the daddy do? Before the son has a chance to confess his sins, the daddy starts kissing him, loving him, with all of his tears flowing down his cheeks. And then... To make it even more startling and amazing, the daddy takes a robe and puts it around the tattered clothes of the son who had spent everything in a profligacy. Then he gives him the signet ring, which is basically the charge card saying, you can go into town and buy anything you want to. And then he throws a feast for his son. Now, the older brother is really angry. He's, how can you do this to the guy who spent all of your inheritance in such a godless way? And the dad says, don't you know, my boy who was once lost is now found. A boy who was once broken is now healed. Don't you see what the daddy did? The daddy, according to Jesus, loved unconditionally. And that's why I call it the prodigal son and the prodigal father because the word prodigal means lavish. The son was lavish in his sin. The father was lavish in his grace. And he was basically saying to the boy, your identity can't be found in your shame. Your identity must solely be found in my love for you. The old has passed away. The new has come. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 language, the father forgave the son. Wow. 
And then finally, the invitation to all. It's a parable in Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Jesus talks about a banquet feast, a wedding feast, where the invitations were sent out and no one responded. They had all kinds of excuses. And finally, the giver of the feast says, go into all the highways and byways. Matthew 22, 9. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. (laughs) Now, in Jesus' culture, the Jews thought they were the unique chosen of God that he didn't love Gentiles. And here's Jesus saying... This love, this banquet feast of love is not just for you, it's for Gentiles, it's for everyone. And the people who end up coming to the banquet are the poor, the crippled, the lame, the broken, and the hurting. Don't you understand, folks? Your shame is not greater than the grace of God. His invitation is to you to come to the wedding feast and receive anew his incredible kindness to you today. Come unto me, all who are heavy laden, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. And, and I'll give you rest. All who are heavy laden, come to me. Give me your shame. Let me carry it. You now have a new identity in me. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David and I discuss another one of his Davidisms that will help us understand the danger of harboring an offense. We'll be right back. I'm Mark McManus with Moments of Hope Church's Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. With me in the studio today is Tony Marciano, Executive Director of the Charlotte Rescue Mission. Tony, tell us about the Charlotte Rescue Mission. Mark, at the Charlotte Rescue Mission, everything we do is about transformation. With a focus on individuals struggling with addiction, we uniquely work from the inside out to address the root cause. And we accomplish that by providing professional, Christian residential recovery services free of charge. Now let me back up for just a moment and explain all that to you. When I say the word transformation, I get those marching orders from John 6, very interesting chapter of the Bible, where on day one Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That night the disciples float across the lake. Jesus follows them by walking across the lake, and the next day the crowd gets in boats and follows them. But on day two, Jesus chooses not to feed them. He begins to preach at them, and they all leave. I think in that one chapter, it's the heart of God for the poor, where God says on day one, I love you so much, I accept you just as you are. But day two, God is saying, I love you too much to leave you there. And that's the hard work of transformation that we focus on every day at Charlotte Rescue Mission. I mentioned we uniquely work from the inside out to address the root cause, and that root cause is shame. Guilt is when I make a mistake, but shame says I am a mistake. And if you knew me, you wouldn't like me. And if God knew me, God wouldn't like me. And then I wrapped it up by saying we address this by providing professional, free, Christian residential recovery services. I like to use the verses out of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. And verse 19 says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Mark, I believe firmly that when someone realizes that God's love is four-dimensional, not three-dimensional, not conditional, but unconditional, when they have that aha moment that God loves them, all the shame in their soul goes away because they know they are fully accepted by God, not for what they've done, but simply because God loves them. And that's what we do every day at Charlotte Rescue Mission. Love to have you get involved. Please go to our webpage, charlotterescuemission.org, for ways that you can impact the people we serve. 
I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Jen. It's great being with you again today. Well, today, let's talk about your Davidism that deals with offense. You call this one, Step Over the Offense. Can you please share with us more about this one and how to do this? I can, Jen. Um, I don't know if I've practiced this as well as I'm teaching it, but it is a truth that all of us need to learn and can avoid a lot of pain and conflict if we can learn this truth. Um, When someone offends you, and Jesus said in Luke 17, 1, that offenses will happen to you. Mm. It's because all of us are corrupted with sin. All of us are basically selfish. We will bump into one another. We will step on each other's toes. That's just a reality. Uh, We are not independent of one another. We are interdependent. We all interact with one another. So Mm. someone will offend you at some time or another. The question then becomes, what do you do when that offense occurs? Mm -hmm. Do you retaliate, become angered, incited? Try this instead. Step over the offense. It's the one surefire way to protect yourself from the root of bitterness. Mm -hmm. Bitterness is an acidic emotion that eats away at our souls. When we allow an offense from another to enter our own hearts, we're allowing the seed of bitterness to take root. When we stew on an offense, we're watering the root of bitterness. When we won't let go of the wrong done to us, we're fertilizing bitterness. Mm. And the root of bitterness then spreads in our hearts, it erodes our souls, and eventually it hurts people around us. That's what Hebrews 12, 15 clearly teaches. Like many unwanted negative emotions, the best way to avoid them is to prevent them from ever occurring. Don't let bitterness plant a seed in your heart, dear friends. Prevent it by stepping over the offense. Give your hurt to God and do so immediately. Avoid the erosive effects of bitterness. How? By simply stepping over the offense. Hmm. Now, my guess is, Jen, you and others are feeling right now, that sounds easier said than done. Yes, exactly what I was thinking. But here's the deal. Jesus wants us to forgive. That is a command because he knows that forgiveness as well is a major way of defeating bitterness in our Mm -hmm. hearts. But I was thinking, you know, before you ever get to the need to forgive, is there something that you can do to prevent even the tool of forgiveness needing to be applied Mm -hmm. in your life? And I think the answer is, yeah, if you can possibly step over the offense. Jen, so many of us are so easily offended. I I know I am. I I operate oftentimes in the sensitivity of my soul. And when somebody touches something, I react in defense and want to defend myself and be right and all of that stuff. My wife's pointed it out to me on many an occasion. And I'm trying to learn now that if something winces my heart, if I could just simply pause, breathe deeply, and say, you know, maybe there's some truth to this, Mm -hmm. and then just step over it and not retaliate, not get defensive, I don't then cause the other person to get defensive back at me. I prevent a huge argument and disagreement from ever occurring. So I'm just suggesting that maybe if people are able to, just step over the original offense. Mm -hmm. And when you do so, you avoid the bitterness from ever even entering your heart. And here's another truth. Please, listeners, if you are offended and it does get into your soul, here's what you need to do. 
You need to go to the person who offended you and try to talk it out. That's yeah. Matthew 18, 15. If someone offends you, don't go tell somebody else about the offense. Go to the person and talk to them. But even better than that, if you're able to step over the offense and never allow bitterness to enter your heart, you'll never have to worry about the need to forgive someone who's hurt you. So good. Thank you so much, David. Thank you all for listening. It's been great being with you. I look forward to talking with you all next week. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from a series called Heartbeats from our online worship service. You can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope delivered every morning to your inbox. And also check out David's weekly Hopecast, They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston. I hope you have a great weekend.